This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Rory Mealy returned to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints after years of semi-activity and withdrawal of church membership. He and his wife have three beautiful children with a myriad of health issues, including Crohn's disease, Down syndrome, congenital heart defects, anorectal malformations, among other things. He gained a love of writing as a trained public affairs officer for the U.S. Army and a love for the plain and simple doctrines of the church through enduring hard things. I'm Tara McCausland, and I'd like to welcome our listeners and thank Rory for being here with me today. Thank you, Rory, for taking the time to do this. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to to speak with you. And this is actually on the eve of uh, a surgery that his little daughter is going to be going through tomorrow. And so I'm very cognizant of the fact that Rory has a lot of things on his mind, and so he is being very generous and and speaking with me tonight. Um, but I wanted to start, Rory, in asking you, do you recall any spiritual experiences from your youth that planted seeds of faith? Um, you know, there, there's a few. Um, my, my sister died when I was 13 um, during a, a drinking and driving accident. And uh, during that time is when I can honestly say I felt the, the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Um, I saw the, the doctrine of Christ in action when with so many people reaching out for us. Um, and, and that's become a foundation of my faith because I, I, you know, being 13 years old, I wanted to know where she was going to be. I wanted to know where I was going to be. Um, and, and so... I, I dove into the scriptures to, to answer those questions for me. Um, but the, the ones that are more striking to me, I had I had two leaders growing up at about the same time. Um, I confided in a, a priesthood leader at one point with some very pressing things on my soul and uh, to see teenage follies. And, and I confided in, in him and uh, his... His warning, his instruction was well-intended, but very poorly delivered. And it was a traumatic experience for me. It actually um, it stayed with me for years and kind of molded. You know, I, I had to dive deeper into the scriptures to know, can I be saved? Am, am I worth saving? And um, on the reverse side of that, I had a Sunday school teacher who was simply amazing. Um, she cared for all of us in her class. And uh, I still have quotes that she gave me, but she she pulled me aside after class at one point and she looked at me and she said, you're going to be an apostle one day. And uh, which was kind of the opposite of what my priesthood leader had told me. Um, in fact, directly opposite. And uh, it, uh, it surprises me how the negative caught me and and stuck with me for so many years but the the positive didn't um I, I was too easy to brush off a statement like that because i at that point i didn't feel like i was really worth anything um and and so i i wish i would have known the power of that statement um never will i be an apostle <laughs> and i i i don't see that in in my cards um especially now but uh but what do what do apostles do? They t- they testify of Christ. They bring people to Christ. And so, knowing now that it it doesn't matter what my calling is, whether you know a Sunday school teacher or or an apostle, if we're bringing people to Christ, that's what she was getting at. That's what she was teaching me, that I was going to have the ability to share my testimony with people. Um, her delivery maybe just seemed a little too exaggerated for for young mind um but uh looking back on it i had two people with with very contrasting counsel and that both of them shaped my faith because either way i had to dive into the scriptures to know who i was and who i was going to be 
when I'll say, Rory, never say never. I'm pretty sure that Alma the Younger never thought it was in his cards either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not going to gamble on anything at this point. <laughs> well, I, I kid, but I often think that it, the greatest warriors are those who have seen the, the darkness. Yeah. And I know from what I have read from you and heard from you that you are a warrior in the gospel and touching people that that you otherwise could not without the experiences that you've had. So I appreciate that you are using your pain for, for good and reaching people who have also experienced the darkness and maybe feeling like there's no light. But I also wanted to point out, you know, it's interesting in the church. Sometimes we may think my, my role as a Sunday school teacher or uh, as a primary teacher so small and how much good can I really do? But I, I appreciate that you point out the impact that we can have as leaders in whatever calling we might have. And as we are doing our best within whatever calling we have, um, trying to teach others of Christ and, and loving them and helping them see their potential, then we are always exactly where we should be. Uh, I think of the verses um, to, to magnify your calling, right? Um, and, and this is my favorite, my favorite object lesson, if you will, a magnifying glass. If you look through it, the image of the object gets bigger, right? And the object itself doesn't get big, bigger. You can maybe see a little bit more detail with a magnifying glass, but there's, there's more power than that. If you take a magnifying glass and you focus sunlight, uh, and you focus it just right, you can catch things on fire. You can start a blaze on something. And and I think that with this very thing, that if we focus the light of Christ into people's lives and with just the right focus, not too much, not too little, we can we can catch something on fire in them. We can let the Holy Ghost burn in them. We can bring the light of Christ alive in them. And, and I always just I think that's a beautiful image for, for those verses to magnify your calling to magnify your office. Um, I think it was uh, John Wycliffe said to catch on fire with enthusiasm and people will come for miles to watch you burn. And I think of that in the gospel light, that if you have it burning in your heart, you can light it in others. That's all really good stuff. I love that metaphor, analogy, whatever you might call it, of the magnifying glass. Um, Thank you for sharing all of that. Mm -hmm. Now to maybe take that last question a step further. So you already alluded to some of the challenges in your youth, but tell me a little bit more about your early years and your relationship with God and the church. Um, So I had very great parents, very loving parents, but uh, I don't, I wouldn't have considered us very active. Um, We tried. Uh, but there were often times that we found ourselves up in the mountains fishing on Sunday, um, spending very good quality time together as a family. But sometimes we we fell short on on the discipleship portion, um, and that's not any discredit to my family. Um, I loved my upbringing, uh, and uh, my relationship with God again was was with them. They, you know, I I find God out in nature, out in the wild. Um, gazing at the stars, uh, being among his creation. So that they taught me a lot in that regard and how important family is. Um, we're not perfect by any means. And I, I really, at this point, don't know anybody that is. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I took my spirituality into my own hands at an early age. And um, seminary became my place to be. I felt comfortable there. I wanted to learn. I had a craving for it. And I had some amazing teachers. In fact, they, I think they, they did right in teaching us a lot of thing, the things that a lot of people have in, in the church are, are struggling with now. Um, a lot of different gospel history topics. Um, I grew up learning. Uh, maybe not in depth, and there's still some new things that, that I'm seeing. But uh, they taught us how to navigate uh, those questions. So between my family and seminary and and really good friends in my life, um, I found God through them. I've always 
always struggled to know him personally. And I think that stems back to that one priesthood leader that kind of just shifted my perspective of who I am. I, I think I knew about Christ, but I didn't know Christ. Um, I knew about the Holy Ghost, but I didn't know the Holy Ghost. And and same thing with my Heavenly Father. I knew about Him, but I didn't know Him. And I, I'm, I'm starting that relationship. Um, I started it a couple of years ago, and, and it's it's growing, and, and we're navigating that as a family together. So it sounds like you you had some some good roots to start. Mm-hmm. When did things start to shift and sour in, in your relationship with the church? What was perhaps an impetus for that? <clears throat> um, my mission. Um, I, I served in the Oklahoma City mission. I had, I had great uh, friends uh, in the mission field. Um, I met companions and other missionaries. My, my mission president was amazing. Um, I, I think I tried to leave about maybe seven or eight times and he talked me down, <laughs> uh, each time. Um, he, he gave me opportunities to go and, and, but he asked me to think on it a couple times. I never felt like I should be out there. I tried to go home. I was really hard on myself. In fact, I was looking through some of my old mission letters to my, my president, some of the letters I wrote to, to my folks and, I saw a lot of pain in those letters, and I also saw a lot of strength that that uh, despite that pain, I'm going to hold on. I'll hold on a little bit longer. But uh, I, I think it was it didn't have anything to do with the people. Um, we we met wonderful people in Oklahoma, um, a lot of wonderful Christians that uh, we have a lot of commonalities with, but they have a lot of bias and prejudice towards the church because they don't understand or stuff that they'd been taught. Um, we met a lot of preachers. There were times when there was one time in particular that uh, we were called uh, venomous. Uh, a gentleman outside of his, his garage building some shelves he said, you missionaries with your zealous nature are venom to the rest of the world because of the false doctrines that you teach. And so statements like that, which we got often, um, really kind of ate at me because I was a young kid. I, at, you know, serving my mission, that's kind of where I started to gain my testimony. But it's also where I also started to become bitter. Um, it was, I think it was about 2000 that we celebrated the 200th birthday of Joseph Smith. And uh, I remember people saying, oh, you worship a prophet, you worship a prophet. And uh, we'd tell them, no, we revere him as a prophet. But then all year we'd heard about, you know, the the celebration of Joseph Smith's birthday. And um, and so I started to kind of feed into that, that maybe we do, maybe we do prophet worship. Maybe we don't revere him as a prophet, but maybe we we hold him up a little bit higher than we should. And so a lot of the the feelings I had for Joseph uh, became very toxic. I, I started to to loathe him a little bit. I got home from my mission and and really dove into a lot of the church history stuff that that people are having a hard time with now. So um, Freemasonry, uh, polygamy. Uh, the seer stone, I started to look into those things and I had a testimony of the church. I couldn't deny the church and I couldn't deny Joseph Smith as a prophet because of the testimonies that I'd received during my mission, during my studies, during some personal revelations I had, but I hated him. Um, and I, I hated how people liked him. And I, I, because of my, my personal, experiences i hated that 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 he was called as a prophet and that it was all true (laughs) if that makes any sense i i if if it wasn't true if he wasn't a prophet i could live how i wanted to live how i felt i should live with no restraints no restrictions and so I, i was fighting myself the whole time fighting the natural man knowing that that these things were true and uh, and that was painful. 
I mean, it was painful for years. I almost took my life over it. Um, and uh, yet again, God showed me his love and mercy by having my bishop intervene at that moment. So there were times that it was just overwhelming and um, and painful. Um, but it all grew together. It was me walking this fine life between between spirituality and the natural man. And I... I, it was a balancing act this last decade. And so maybe I can go back and ask a clarifying question. Mm-hmm. So you said you you felt like you didn't belong in the mission. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Why that why that feeling was there? You know, I've never felt like I've belonged ever. I, I it goes back to that that first priesthood leader. And, and the things that I was uh, dealing with as a youth and the things that I deal with now, um, it was it was this ostracizing feeling that I never belonged. And Satan has always nagged that in my ear, that you don't belong here. You don't belong in this church. You don't belong in this family. You don't belong in this life. Um, you don't belong in the mission. Uh, I was never worthy. Um, didn't matter if I was doing things right I was never worthy and again I was fighting myself on that right um between Satan putting that in my mind and and me putting that in my mind um I never felt like I could be a representative of Christ um it was this toxic perfectionism that that Elder Holland spoke of that because of my natural dispositions there was no way that I could receive the promised blessings of the gospel. And it took me a lot of learning to realize that that wasn't true. It took the Holy Ghost giving me a paradigm shift the day after I was excommunicated. I know they call it withdrawal of church membership now, but, but when I, when it was, you know, when it happened to me, I was excommunicated very next day in church, he was nagging and and the spirit whispered to me that that I did belong here. He did it in a very um, unconventional way. Uh, just at the point of nagging, I almost stood up to leave sacrament meeting. And this, the hymn was playing, Oh, My Father. And uh, the spirit whispered, you know, he's right. You don't belong here. And, uh, and at that moment, the, the phrase that the spirit whispered, you're a stranger here. And you came from holier spheres. And I, at that point, there's nothing that Satan can say or do that would make me feel like I don't belong anymore. That feeling has gone away completely. And, and it was a complete paradigm shift. In one moment of time, after the most painful experience of my life, that was God telling me that he loved me and that I had a place in his church, even though I, I didn't belong at that moment, I had a place in this life. I had a place in my family. Um, and so, yeah, Satan, Satan knew that he could get me to just not feel welcome anywhere, to feel alone, to feel abandoned. And a lot of that didn't have to do with anybody around me. Nobody treated me bad growing up. Um, it was it was all just my own perceptions, my own beliefs were our own worst enemy, especially when when Satan's guiding the effort. I think so many people can relate to that feeling of not belonging. And so I appreciate you sharing that because we all struggle um, sometimes uh, behind closed doors, that nagging, as you talked about, that the adversary, he will put a bug in our ear and he will. He will just keep going with that until we can tap into that source of love, which is our Heavenly Father. I love this quote from um, Brad Wilcox. He said, God doesn't love us because we are good. He loves us because he is good. Right. Understanding that concept that that we will never be good enough. <laughs> right. Because we're all sinners, um, but that, that Christ covered us covered us he covered our sins and that it's in god's nature to love us to root for us to see the good in us and to recognize that on our own we will never make it christ will be the bridge for each one of us and it's such an interesting dynamic to be able to teach the atonement and how the atonement 
is for everyone and Christ knows everyone and Christ can succor everyone. And then to take that next step and say, except for me. And I know countless people who have said that personally to me. I've, I've heard people say that over the pulpit. Um, it, it's so easy to say, here's the doctrine and then disconnect ourselves from the doctrine. And I don't know why we do that. I think it's based on experience that, that, that until we feel it, it's it's just doctrine. Um, we have to have those spiritual experiences to know that's where our testimony shines. It's easy to know the doctrine, but to say that the doctrine fits my life or my life fits the doctrine is, I think, key to knowing and becoming more like Christ. So if you don't mind, if we're going to go back a little bit so we can give our listeners a little bit of a timeline. So you served a mission. And you came home. I understand you were married in the temple. Mm-hmm. So at what point, I know that this was kind of festering uh, for a while when you weren't sharing much with those close to you about what you were feeling. Can you tell us, after you were married, the timeline of what was happening with your connection with the church, your testimony, and what led up to your excommunication? I won't, I won't get into details, but I, after I was married, it was really, I just started to become more and more bitter towards the church, started living a lifestyle inconsistent with the church. Uh, at the same time, I wasn't honest about what I was doing. And that's really where Satan had me, right? To, to bind our tongues that we do not speak, that we live in fear, in embarrassment, in self-judgment that we don't reach out for help when we when we need it the most. And so I gave up on the church. I gave up on God. I gave up on myself. And so it was about six or seven years of, of really just my decline. I'd always had a hard time with the church, but I was holding on. I was holding on. I was, I was still trying. I, I was testifying. I was, you know, uh, going to church. And then it just kind of, I became more and more casual about it. And uh, just kind of fell into to semi-activity in the church. I would show up occasionally. I blamed a lot of it on work. And there were often times that I was out of town for work. But it just became easy to, to hide. Very easy to hide. Um, and, and I think that's with anybody. It's so easy to hide in sin and silence in this church. It doesn't take much effort. And uh, and that's where we, we get it wrong. If we aren't able to voice our concerns and our problems and our fears with our spouses, with our priesthood leaders, with our friends, um, the adversary has us because he's stopping us from, from keeping our very basic baptismal covenants to mourn with those that mourn and to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to bear each other's burdens that they may be light, and to stand as a witness of God in those times for those that we are helping. If we are silent and quiet, we can't live that covenant. And we don't allow others to live that covenant. And so our relationship with Christ suffers because our relationship with each other suffers. And that's hard to get past. Um, Why do we do that? Well... Because of the fear, the embarrassment, the, the assumed judgment, right? They're going to judge me because I, I look at pornography, because of you know whatever it is that we're struggling with, um, word of wisdom, immorality, gambling. Um, we're always afraid that the people that we look up to are going to hate us or not like us or talk about us behind our backs. And does that happen? It absolutely does happen. Does it happen as much as we think we do or think it does? Maybe not. Um, but I, I think at the root of it is is the covenant keeping. Um, and that's where I went wrong. I didn't allow other people to live up to that covenant because of the fear. I didn't allow my spouse to live up to her covenants because of the fear. I wasn't living up to my covenants, so I had something to be afraid of. And... And uh, so that happened for for years, and uh, it finally ended one night. So what was then the catalyst for this change of heart? 
so the missionaries knocked on my door. I was home alone and um, very, very ordinary night. And I was uh, fixing the wall downstairs. I was putting up some sheetrock. And <clears throat> they knocked on the door and asked if they could share a video. And it was um, uh, the testimony of Joseph Smith. They had taken all of Joseph Smith's accounts of the first vision and combined them into one narrative. And made a video of it, and I'd never seen it before. Um, I, at that point, I wasn't going on looking to <laughs> renew my my testimony, um, but I, I invited them in, and they shared that. And God, at that moment, said, "Do you remember when I gave you the testimony of the restoration in a very real way?" And the missionary has left, and I went and prayed for the first time in a long time, and. Um, it brought me back to a time in college where during some very sh- strong heartache, um, God showed me how to put myself in the restoration narrative, um, reading the first verses of Joseph Smith history where he went into the, the sacred grove and prayed and, and how he was overcome by the adversaries. I, I was reading it with my name in the place of Joseph's. Um, the world was calling out to me and and so many people were calling me this direction and calling me that direction. And I I lacked judgment and I found myself alone and I was about ready to abandon myself to destruction. And, and then the testimony gradually came. And at that point, my life was starting to improve and I, I found somebody I cared about and we got married and, and then it just kind of started to fall apart again. And he, he reminded me of, of that. And so I felt the spirit for the first time in a long time saying, hey, it's time to come back. I can look back now over those seven years and see multiple times when God was calling me back, telling me to repent, telling me to change, telling me to to restore my faith. And I was past feeling I couldn't hear any of it. But my memory serves me well enough that I, I can recognize those now. The Spirit helps me to see when those moments were. And so those missionaries, they didn't know that that I was inactive. We had moved to Kansas and had just been there a couple of, of weeks, maybe a few months. And uh, the Spirit told them, hey, go see Brother Mealy. And they did. I, again, I don't know why my heart was open at that point on that night to receive it, but... God knows us better than we know ourselves and and sends the, the Spirit to, to call us back. I love hearing stories of people returning to the church for many reasons, but oftentimes you will hear that kind of common thread in many stories of I felt that God kept calling me back and there were moments here and there where I know he was trying. He was reaching for me, but I wasn't ready yet. But what I love about it is that God keeps reaching. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's there's a, a number that God says, okay, I gave him five times, that's it. <laughs> no, that, that um, scripture that says my, my arms are stretched out still. Yes. It's so applicable to everyone. It doesn't matter where you are. If you turn and start walking his direction, you have the promise that his arms are stretched out still. I hope that that gives people perspective and 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 hope for mm-hmm. themselves and for their loved ones who are wandering mm-hmm. because i truly believe that god will continue to reach for us no matter how long we've been away or how far off the path we've walked i know we're kind of jumping back and forth but one thing that you had s- spoken to earlier at the very beginning you were saying how you you didn't feel like you were worth saving mm-hmm. as a young person and continued, as you described, on your mission, not feeling like you belonged. If you could go back in time and have a conversation with your teenage self or with the missionary, what truths would you want to help the younger Rory understand about himself and his relationship with God that perhaps could have saved some heartache and challenge in the future. I don't know if I would have listened to myself. (laughs) 
I, I think the best thing I could have told him is to, to buckle up that, uh, that life is to be experienced. Um, because if I, if I went back to try and make it easier, easier for young Rory, um, I don't know if I would have gotten the lessons that I'm, that I'm needing today as, as a young father. I don't think that would have served me well at all. We're, we're a church that believes in the opposition of all things, right? So if, if I want to experience joy and the joy that I'm feeling now has gotten me through some difficult times in this past three years, and I don't think I would have known this joy if I hadn't known, you know, a, a decade or two of, of the pain that I felt, if that makes sense. So I think I would have just told them to, to hold on, um, to, to cherish their spiritual burdens. That's one of my favorite quotes from Elder Holland, to cherish your spiritual burdens because God will converse with you through them and will use you to do his work if you carry them well. And if I would have had that when I was younger and and worked on cherishing those burdens and, and finding those lessons, that's another thing with finding those lessons, right? We, we have those moments where you're like, what does God want me to know now? Like, what lesson does he want me to learn? And it seems like every time somebody says that patience is the, the value, right, every single time, I think he wants us to learn how to lean on Christ in all of that how to seek the spirit and all of that. Those are the lessons that, that we need to learn to, to walk the path that will lead us closer to Christ during those moments. So again, I don't know if, if I would have listened to me, but if I would have heard a couple of, of key phrases like that, maybe that would have helped. We're meant to experience the full range of emotions in our life. And we need to be given permission at an early age to experience that full range of emotions. And then to hear that that's okay. Because a lot of people grow up saying you can't have those emotions. You need to hold that in. You look weak if you display that. Um, priesthood leaders aren't. Don't, don't act like that. Um, and, and I think that creates that toxic perfectionism. Um, so I think if I, I went back and maybe told myself to experience, um, that I had permission to experience all those feelings and emotions and temptations and struggles, I think I would have been a little less hard on myself. But I don't know. I don't even know if I would have listened to that permission. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. Alma the Younger, I love his story because we we see how because he experienced such exquisite pain, he was able to experience that pure joy. Right. And, and also the sons of Mosiah. And we see what came as a result of their, their past. And so uh, in an earlier episode, I interviewed my father, who um, was excommunicated, excommunicated from the church about f- 15 years ago. And so I was able to see firsthand a mighty change of heart happen in him uh-huh. and what the repentance process looked like in real time and how we can become new creatures right? because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And it's like he, when he was rebaptized, it was like he was starting again. Um, but with all this experience that he has been able to use to bless the lives of his fellow men, and also my mom, who works alongside him as they help people uh, dealing with addiction in their marriages. Recently, we've been in Mosiah in Come, Follow Me, and I love the sermon uh, that King Benjamin gives. So many great gems there. And I've been thinking about that concept of being a born again and experiencing a mighty change of heart that the people felt after hearing his words. And I suspect that those phrases have taken on a new meaning for you in these last few years, as you experienced uh, withdrawal of church membership and being rebaptized, can you speak mm-hmm. to that for a minute? Can we can we talk a little bit about the context here and who yeah. we're talking to? So, in Words of Mormon, in the previous book, um, he says, and now concerning this King Benjamin, he had somewhat of contention among his own people, 
And it came to pass also that the armies of the Lamanites came down out of the land of Nephi to battle against his people. Behold, King Benjamin gathered together his army. So this humble servant that we know and love, right, King Benjamin, who's willing to work the, the land with them, um, was was a battled commander of, of the army. Uh, he stood against them. He fought with the strength of his own arm with the sword of Laban. And so you've got this, this strong leader battling for his people. Um, and in the strength of the Lord, they did, did contend against their enemies until they had had slain many of the thousands of the Lamanites. And it came to pass that they did contend against the Lamanites until they had driven them out of the land and had driven them out of the land of their inheritance. Um, not only that, but there had been false Christs that they had to, to shut down and uh, punish according to their crimes. False prophets, false preachers, false teachers among the people. Um, who also had to be punished according to their crimes. And, and that, that contention, that dissension, that all had to go away. And then you've got the sermon of, of King Benjamin and the things that he did. So we, we see this sermon and we see the people gathered around, every family together in their tents facing the prophet. But we don't, I don't think we get a full sense of where they had come from. Because if we had those contentions and dissensions now, how many of the people would actually be at that sermon? These people have already started to, to experience a change of heart enough to listen to a holy man with the help of the holy prophets teaching them. And, and he's saying it's not over. We've got work to do. Um, we've got to become new creatures. We've got to be born again. And my stake president had taught me what that means i took for granted the doctrine of christ it's so easy it's too simple faith in christ and his atonement repentance baptism receiving the holy ghost and during to the end we hear it so often that i think it loses its meaning because we don't we don't investigate it and apply it it's not just faith it's faith in christ Right? We can have faith in ourselves, we can have faith in, in circumstances, but to have faith in Christ that he can change us. Repentance and what that means, right? Because he can change us, I have to change. I spent years saying, I wish the church would change this, and I wish the church would change this. I wish the culture of the church would change this, and I wish the culture of the church would change that. I wish that uh, we as a, a people wouldn't uh, put so much emphasis on this and, and we'd put more emphasis on that. And I wasn't looking at myself. I was always looking outside of me. And that's not how, how faith in Christ works. That's not how repentance works. And so I couldn't change because I wasn't considering me. Uh, it doesn't matter what the church does. It doesn't matter what uh, the people in the church do in the culture it matters what I do, and and that will determine how I treat others and how I come to Christ. Those are the principles of the gospel. The ordinances are just as powerful, right? Those those two first things, they, they help cleanse us. Baptism helps cleanse us. But the Holy Ghost sanctifies us and changes us. And so uh, in this past couple of years, I've been seeking to have that relationship with the Holy Ghost, not just to comfort me, not just to guide me, not just to tell me who to go visit and who to help and how I can to just lend support to others, but how the Holy Ghost can sanctify me. And I've been leaning heavily on that because when we obey every prompting, when we seek for the Holy Ghost, we obey those promptings, we listen and obey we're living the celestial law, right? We're living above the plane of the natural man. We're, we're walking with a member of the Godhead in our lives as a constant companion. When we're not doing those things, we don't have that right to his companionship. And so it's, it's a very deliberate thing to invite him into our life and walk with him. Because that's how we become new creatures and born again. And that's just the first step in our journey in this life is, is being born again. So as you started making changes in your life and again, talking about this mighty change of heart, what would you say is the biggest difference that you've seen in yourself as you have moved forward with that 
that true desire to follow Christ and leave behind your old life? Um, I can tell you what my wife has seen in me. Um, mm-hmm. She has made it known multiple times that, that I'm willing to help people, that I'm, I think, outside of myself more. Um, I think it started with uh, my neighbor across the street in, in Kansas. Um, I would just, you know, I was mowing my lawn and uh, might as well mow theirs too. And uh, she brought that to my attention. And uh, I I don't think that's led up at all. Uh, I continue to, to try and serve others because I, I think more more often than not, that's when we are... If King Benjamin said it, right, that when you're in the service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. It's my way of saying I'm mindful of the change that's taken place, and I want, I want more. I want to become more than what I what I used to be, because um, what I used to be was very self-centered and prideful, and not conducive to the Spirit. Christ said, if you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And he went twofold. Whether you clothed the naked or healed the sick or fed the hungry or whether you didn't, uh, our actions display our relationship with Christ. Our actions towards others display our relationship towards Christ. I couldn't help but think of... Enos, as you were talking about that, which, by the way, I think spouses are always going to be the best (laughs) people to ask, like, what change do you see in your spouse? Right. Um, We see in Enos's story as he received forgiveness that immediately his heart turned toward his brethren, the Nephites, and then didn't stop there. His heart turned toward his enemies. And so I think you're right. I think one of the fruits of Real repentance is our the kind of love and charity that we start to feel and to show for our fellow men. It's no different with uh, Lehi too. In the the uh, dream that he had of the vision he had of the tree of life, right? He partook of the fruit, and then he desired what for his family to partake. I once you partake of the atonement, once you once you feel it, you can't help but want to share it. It's that charity, that love that that goes beyond us, right? That's when you know that you, you've changed is because you want to share it with others. So you talked a little bit about how you, you didn't want to share with your family, with ecclesiastical leaders about your struggle, which I totally get. None of us like to share our darkness mm-hmm. and our sin for many people who feel like they don't belong and are on the fringes. They, they don't want to voice their concerns, their, their doubts, their questions. So you've experienced both sides of the coin. You've felt what it's like to be out of the church. But I, I think those of us who have, have lived that life perhaps have a little bit more empathy for those who struggle and who are on the fringes of the church. Mm -hmm. So through your experience, um, how has that changed the way that you communicate and interact with others, especially those who struggle with the church or some aspect of it? I love them. There's a, a quote by Neil A. Maxwell with uh, him struggling with cancer, right? He said, in the, in the midst of a struggle with leukemia, I was doing some pensive pondering, and these instructive and reassuring words came into my mind. I have given you leukemia that you might teach my people with authenticity. And, and I think that that's how I feel towards, towards others that maybe are living a lifestyle inconsistent with the gospel or ready to resign their membership or have already resigned their membership in the church. I know what it's like. I know how some people feel towards it, and uh, I try to let them know that that I'm somebody that they can talk to. I'm not here to to force my agenda or project my faith onto others, and I think people know 
um, now, especially where I write and speak about my my experience, that they know where I stand with the gospel, but they also know that I love them and care for them enough to um, experience life as they need to experience it. I think we get really worked up in the church about living a life inconsistent with the gospel or leaving the parents, especially right when our, our kids leave, how am I going to react? And I think that's doctrinally the case, right? We, we worry, we, we have that, uh, that mindset that they're lost. They're wandering in mist of darkness. Maybe they've already joined the great and spacious building and they're pointing their finger back at us, but sometimes they're just experiencing the opposition that they need to experience so that they can know where the real joy is and will they come back? Um, you know, that's, that's their life. That's their experience. That's their, their right. And our duty is still the same, right? To love our neighbor as, as ourselves, to love God and keep his commandments and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we'll try to justify our behavior. We'll try to justify others' behaviors. Um, but we're not here to project our, our beliefs onto others. We're, we're here to love each other through it. And we can do that without violating our covenants, without violating our relationship with God. If, if there's anybody that, that's leaving the church, I, I invite them to keep an open heart to returning. Maybe one day they will. If they don't, I'm going to celebrate their their life achievements. Their, that's that's one thing that I loved about living in Kansas is um, seeing my friends get baptized in, in their other faiths. You know, we, we talk about needing the priesthood to um, have the authority to baptize and to receive the Holy Ghost. And then seeing our friends baptize in, in their faiths and, and how they do it. I found myself celebrating those acts of faith and feeling in my heart that God recognizes that act of faith. I, I realized I can celebrate other people's achievements, even outside of the gospel. I think it was Brigham Young that said that a, a good man outside of the church is still a good man. That had an impact on me, that uh, we still live our day-to-day and and it's really again that relationship i'm not going to have a relationship with someone just because they're a member of the church just because we had that experience and that connection if they're struggling i'm going to struggle with them and and offer any support i can and if they don't want that support i'm still gonna you know respect their wishes and their beliefs and their their faith structure it's a fine line um and and it's a balancing act and i don't think we're going to get it right all the time and I think we need to be a little bit more like God uh, on those, to, to see other people as God sees them. God sees them as worth all of it. Worth it so much that he gave his son to die for him, to bring him home, and to suffer his sins for all of us, right? The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And if we can see that in every single one of them, and it's not easy... But if we can do that, I, I think there that's where the power lies, and that's what I try to do is to see people how God sees them. And I'm not definitely not perfect at it. One thing that Joseph Smith said that it, that God is more boundless in His mercies and liberal in His views than sometimes we can understand. And I'm wondering if I can be more boundless in my mercies and more liberal in my views towards other people so that I can just display the love that I'm commanded to display for other people. Amen. What I might say in summary is stop stressing, keep your covenants, and just love people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, God will take care of it. I really do believe that. I believe that more and more every day as I as I get to talk to people like you who, who have come back to activity, but more than that, who who we recognize that the church is a vehicle, it's a scaffolding for us, but it's it's about our relationship with Christ. And God loves each of us in and outside of the church equally, and he will take us on our unique journey, and, and, and he'll do everything in his power to bring us all home. Right. So Rory, 
my final question that I'd like to ask is, um, why through all this are you still rowing and choosing faith in the restored church of Jesus Christ? I have a perspective that I've not had before. And it came over not just being excommunicated and, and, and returning, but uh, in, in this past three years, my family has grown exponentially. My kids wanting to pray, um, my kids wanting to read the scriptures, wanting to go to the temple for our, our walks around the temple. Uh, seeing their change has has wanted me to keep growing and recognizing that we live in a world that I'm preparing them for. What kind of life do I want to, to give them and what kind of upbringing do I want to give them to give that foundation? And that really hit home with the birth of our, our youngest, who's two now, the one that's having surgery tomorrow. Um, when she was born, she was premature with a severe congenital heart defect and born without an anus. Um, it's an anal rectal malformation. And so um, the surgery she's having is, is number eight. Um, she's had three on her heart and, and the rest on her bowels. And, uh, and she has way more complexities than that. But, um, you know, a surgery on day three of her life and then a heart surgery at seven months. Um, a full heart repair at seven months and knowing that Rose and I aren't sealed to her because she's born out of the covenant really brought it into perspective for me. So why do I keep rowing? Because I'm looking for that opportunity to receive the restoration of blessings ordinance to be able to take my family to the temple to witness us being sealed to Madison, to my youngest, so that my kids can know the value and the gratitude that we have for what God has given us and, and what God has given us is Christ. And I want my kids to know Christ and I want them to know Christ through helping and serving other people and in the ordinances that we partake of as a, as a church. And uh, all of that's been compounded with uh, this pandemic temples closing down, having church at home, and I can't bless the sacrament at home um, until that those blessings are restored. All of those keep me going, knowing that I, I was never ready to perform those ordinances for my family. I was never ready to be that spiritual guide for my family, but now I'm ready. Now I'm looking for that opportunity to to unite my family in a way that I've not been able to unite them. And that's what Christ has given us. That's what this church has given us um, with Christ at the head of this church. I keep rowing because they are my eternity as we accept Christ together. Thank you, Rory. And thanks so much for your time and testimony today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Tara. I appreciate this opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. The views expressed here are not necessarily the views of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor is this podcast affiliated with the church. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to receive updates on future episodes. You can submit comments or questions at stillrowing.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.